You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. So everything we eat requires fertilizer to grow. Do you know what the three main ingredients of fertilizer are? Uh, let's see, nitrates, nitrates, calcium, as what, what will most people just say, the S word. <laughs> From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, how fertilizer became a political pawn. We talk a lot on this show about how the world being so closely connected means a shock in one part of the globe is often felt everywhere else, and sometimes in unexpected ways. Today, another example of that. Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused prices of fertilizer to spike. In some countries, that means it's become harder to get enough to grow critical crops like corn. And even in places like the U.S. where crops are plentiful, higher fertilizer costs will show up in higher food prices at the supermarket. Why did this happen? My colleague Elizabeth Elkin covers this industry, and she's here to explain how fertilizer, just like oil, gas, and semiconductors, has become wrapped up in the geopolitical rivalries between East and West. Elizabeth, when we think about the war in Ukraine, and it's now been a year, and so I think we've all been thinking about it a lot, fertilizer is not one of the things that comes to the top of most people's minds. And yet this is a really big problem that began shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine. What happened? Yeah, absolutely. Fertilizer is obviously not one of the first things that you think about when you think about this war, but it is one of the most important things for food security. After Russia invaded Ukraine, we saw prices for fertilizer just go nuts because Russia is one of the top suppliers of these really important nutrients to the entire world. When we weren't sure that exports were going to happen, we said, well, what do we do? You know, like a fifth of the world's fertilizer is in this country that now everybody is sanctioning and we're just totally not sure that anything's going to make it out. So where do we make up for those nutrients and how do we continue to feed people? If fertilizer prices are super expensive, then that means that it is way more expensive, even if you can get fertilizer, to grow crops. And so then that can help push up the price of crops. And so all of that plays into your food supply, right? So like, if it's super expensive to make crops in the U.S., we probably weren't going to see shortages of food, but we have seen like astronomical food inflation and, and a big part of that is fertilizer. 
And one of the things we really did see that I think a lot of people noticed were grain prices, wheat in particular, rising because exports from Ukraine and other places had been kind of curtailed or cut off. But the fertilizer problem is something that goes into the years ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's one of the things that was really tough at the start of this is it's hard to tell how much the price and supply of fertilizer is going to impact food prices because you apply fertilizer for a crop that you won't eat for a long time. If you're trying to grow wheat and you don't put down enough fertilizer, what happens is you get less wheat when you're going to take that wheat out of the ground. Um, And so then the levels of nutrients in the soil go down, and they can go down for more time than just this season, right? And so then you just end up with this whole, like, sort of supply chain issue for, you know, it can be, I mean, a long time. So then the next year's yield is lower, and then Mm -hmm. you get into this kind of downward spiral. Yeah, and then you have to maybe apply more nutrients than you ever would have later. It just depends really on where you are, the nutrient content of the soil. It's very specific to different crops. It just, it's really hard to say, if I don't apply this fertilizer that I need, what's going to happen next year and the next year and the next year? It varies depending on who's planting. And of course, like every crop now, this is science. So your crop is calculated with a certain amount of fertilizer, a certain type of fertilizer. And it's not like you can just, oh, substitute something else. No, definitely not. And corn makes corn syrup, which goes into like soda and everything that we eat. There's a lot of corn syrup in the food that we consume. So corn is super, super important. And you can't skip applying a certain type of fertilizer to corn. It's, It's called nitrogen. Every year you have to apply nitrogen or yield drops dramatically. Rebecca Shasson, our producer in New York, and Catherine Fink, our producer in Washington, went out to ask people if they had any idea what's in the fertilizer used to grow the food they eat. Um, nitrogen. Um, okay, I just got nitrogen. <laughs> Sounds like something unhealthy. Oh, I have no idea. No, no idea, too. Phosphate is one of them. Um, nitrite. It's on the tip of my tongue. I know this one. I know this. Okay, oh, I used to be a geology major, so it's been years. Elizabeth, as you heard there, people, me included, don't really have an idea of what's in fertilizer. You mentioned nitrogen. One guy in the clip got that right. But we tend to think about it as something in a bag. You pour over the dirt, and who knows what's in it. So... What are the main components of commercial fertilizer? Yeah, so there's three main nutrients that people put down on the ground. And, you know, there's other stuff that goes on, too, but these are the big three. It's nitrogen, phosphate, and potash. Potash and phosphate are both mined. Nitrogen is created through a process called the Haber-Bosch process. It's synthetic nitrogen fixation, which just means that you're taking nitrogen from the air and converting it into a form that a plant can use. Nitrogen is generally thought of as the most important because there are plants like corn that you have to apply it every year. It's the one that farmers are not going to skip. If they can skip anything, they're going to start with potash and then they're going to go to phosphate. And then if you see them skipping nitrogen, that's when you know that things are really bad. And so phosphate and potash are, as you say, are mined. You actually have to get it out of the ground, similar to the way you would even mine coal. 
Can you actually describe what is it like to mine potash? So I visited a mine up in Canada late last year. It was very, very cold in Saskatchewan. Inside the mine, it's actually really hot. So, you know, I'm... Because it's so deep underground? It's so deep underground, right. So I'm wearing, like, basically a parka with three other layers underneath because if you've ever been to Saskatchewan, Canada in early December or late November, it is cold. I mean, cold. And then you get down in the mine and you're in all your protective equipment, you know, so that rocks don't fall on you, nothing hurts you, you know, you have to sort of like gear up. And I am like sweating under all of my layers that I'm wearing because I'm in Saskatchewan, Canada. So it's like in the 80s degrees Fahrenheit um, down in the mines. And and what does it look like down there? So it's interesting. I thought there would be more like lights and things. So it's actually really dark. And the only lights come from like your car and your headlamp because your car, they drive around little cars down there because it's so huge. I mean, it's like miles and miles underground. And so if you're just walking, that would take a lot of time and also be not so safe to just have people like wandering around down there. Right. So um, they have you go down this like huge elevator, which everything that's down in the mine had to come down that elevator and be built underground, which is super fascinating. So all of the cars, all of the equipment, everything came down this elevator. And then you're down there and you're surrounded by this super old rock. There's like a lot of pinks in it. So they're pulling up tons of this stuff up, yeah. up out of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. So they've got these huge like boring machines that cut into the wall of the rock, makes all this noise. You wear these headphones and around you, like the air tastes like salt because there's a high salt content of the rock. And so it's like, it's almost like being in the ocean, you know, it's like a weird sort of, I mean, I grew up on the beach and I was like, oh, this is kind of like being back home on the beach. And then it moves on these conveyor belts and then they take it up above ground and then they process it. And so you can go into like their facilities where they're storing it. And it's like these huge, I mean, almost like big mountains of snow, except it's potash. The thing about potash is the top three countries that you mine potash out of are Canada and then it's Russia and Belarus. The U.S. and allies had already imposed sanctions on Belarus for other things before the war. And so that supply was already constrained. And then you get the issues out of Russia, right? And then suddenly countries that usually wouldn't go to Canada for this stuff, like knocking on Canada's door saying, please, please, please think of us when you are mining your potash. Like, we really, really, really need to secure potash. And there was another knock-on effect, which is from China, but it was kind of the opposite of what was happening with Russia. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, China has decided to keep a lot of product in-country. And they're a big producer. And they're a big producer. A lot of product comes out of China. And usually they're a pretty big exporter, and they have mostly stopped exporting a lot of fertilizer. And so at the same time as you had question mark will stuff come out of Russia. And we have seen very little product come out of Belarus since um, sanctions. You also have China saying, 
we want to make sure that we have supply in country. And the thing about China is it's really, really hard to tell what their fertilizer stocks look like. We just don't have really an eye on the ground on that. Even major companies kind of don't know what supplies in China look like. And so it's really hard to tell at what point they're going to say, okay, enough. We can just start exporting again. We don't think that's happening anytime soon. Elizabeth, please stay with me. We'll keep talking after the break. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Elizabeth, before the break, you were talking about fears about fertilizer supplies dwindling from Russia and China for different reasons, which brings us to another big fertilizer producer, the United States. And a lot of what the U.S. produces isn't intended for export. It's just used to meet the huge demands of American agriculture. In the U.S., we have the number one producer of nitrogen fertilizer in the world, and they have been able to produce nitrogen fertilizer at a much lower cost compared to a lot of the world, especially because Natural gas is the number one input for nitrogen fertilizer, most nitrogen fertilizer in the world. In Europe, we had like a fuel crisis, right? I mean, we had, because of the war, we had prices for natural gas exploding in in Europe. And so a lot of European nitrogen fertilizer producers closed down. And so that has also caused supply squeeze, right? So then you have CF Industries, which is the world's biggest producer of nitrogen fertilizer there in the U.S. And suddenly they can make nitrogen much cheaper than almost anywhere else. We've had a pretty good go of nitrogen in the U.S., right? And CF has actually started to export more than they did before the war just because they can get good bang for their buck if they can get their product abroad, which has been an interesting sort of like difference in the U.S. market than what we saw before the war. So the U.S. hasn't suffered as much as some other countries simply because there's pretty good supply. Yeah, I mean, we're right next to Canada with all of its potash. We've got CF in the U.S., and we've also got Mosaic, which is another huge producer in the U.S., and they do phosphate and potash. And so we've had a pretty good supply of fertilizer. I mean, prices have still been high because it's a global market. So, of course, prices are high everywhere, but the U.S. hasn't really had a shortage problem. Elizabeth, we talked about how in countries that produce fertilizer, the U.S., Canada, they've been somewhat isolated from these shocks. But 
that's not true in a lot of the biggest consuming nations of fertilizers, especially developing nations that really, really need this just for basic necessities. Yeah, so it's sort of a classic case of haves and have-nots here. So you have places like the U.S. where we're largely doing okay because we, you know, we have supply and we already are like a pretty wealthy country, right? And then you've got places like Africa where they just can't get the product. I mean, even though sanctions don't directly impact Russian fertilizer, they've been very clear about that, right? right. Um, the sanctions don't extend to fertilizer. So Russia is free to export fertilizer. Yes, Russia's free to export fertilizer um, in the same way that it should be free to export grains. We count that as a necessity for food. And so they should be free to export this fertilizer, but it has totally gummed up the supply chain. So you've got Ships unsure if they want to touch the fertilizer because they're afraid of somehow uh, falling under sanctions. And also, product is moving in a different way than it used to. And so some of those supply chains make it really, really difficult. Well, one example you write about is Malawi. Yeah. Tell us about their experience right now. Malawi is already one of the poorest places in the world. I mean, they really struggle. And then now, on top of that, you have, I I mean, it's been months trying to get them the supply of fertilizer that they need that is pushing back the ability to, like, grow crops. Because you can't just apply fertilizer at any point in the year. When they need the fertilizer, they need the fertilizer. And that's sort of what Malawi is facing right now, is that long-term, okay, if we can't get our fertilizer, how do we feed these people? But it's not just there. You also write that countries in other regions of the world are suffering in the same way. Yeah, exactly. It's not just African nations. For example, go to the other side of the earth and then you've got Peru, which is actually turning to guano, which has been used as a fertilizer in the past. It is bird poop. Um, It has been proven to be a really good source of nutrients for crops. If they can't get the product that they need, guano is a good alternative for them. Well, I mean, there's a lot of birds, so yeah. <laughs> you could see how they could produce a lot of guano that I suppose could be collected, but they don't do it in all one place. So how do they actually collect it? Yeah, so I think that the birds like certain areas, and so you just, I mean, go to where the birds are, and you collect the guano, and then it's used as a fertilizer. And it's not just bird guano. They can use bat guano, too. So there are a lot of different types of guano that can be used. That doesn't seem like it's going to be a viable solution. No, especially not to feed, like, the massive amount of people on this earth. We'll be right back. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. 
Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Elizabeth, given all the concerns that we're talking about, that there might not be enough fertilizer to meet demand, are there other fertilizers, other things that can be used to make up for the shortfall? You know, a lot of people talk about manure. It's more difficult to collect large quantities of it than it is to, like, just get the synthetic nutrients, right? And so you have that issue. But then you also have the issue of the reason why we originally created the Haber-Bosch process that makes nitrogen fertilizer is because people were worried about an impending food crisis. So if you look back historically, there were people talking a lot about how are we going to feed people. Population keeps growing and um, the manure and guano and all of these other things don't create enough nutrients. There's just not enough of it. The nutrient content is also not high enough to continue to feed the growing population of the earth. And so when they created the way to make nitrogen fertilizer, that was considered the most incredible invention because it allowed population to continue growing. You can't really just say, okay, well, we can't get fertilizer, let's get cow manure, because it just doesn't work the same way. And, you know, we talk about composting and stuff like that. It's a great way to reduce landfill, you know, but it's not a replacement for synthetic fertilizer. Composting is great for your your kitchen, et cetera, like for your little farm or your little your little garden, but it doesn't work for like a massive grains farm that's trying to produce tons and tons of corn to feed the world. So what is the solution? How eventually do we correct this problem and kind of turn the faucet back on of yeah. getting fertilizer where it needs to go? A lot of countries are trying to increase their in-country ability to make new fertilizer, make more fertilizer. So you've got grant money being thrown at it. You've got countries that are trying to make new alliances with other countries. And you've got countries that are trying to make different kinds of connections. Um, So you have Brazil uh, went to Canada and asked Canada, like, can you provide us with more potash? And so you get countries that are trying to, like, build different connections in addition to trying to increase the amount of nutrients that they can make in country. There are also a lot of people that are working on alternatives to synthetic fertilizer. I mean, there's a lot of people who are working on, like, microbes, uh, using like other kinds of technology to make fertilizer in a different way than it's made now. And the hope for that is that it can be a little bit more environmentally friendly too, because the way that we make fertilizer right now is not environmentally friendly. And there's also a lot that gets run off into waterways and um, oceans and, you know, giant like algae blooms and things like fertilizer contributes to a lot of environmental problems. And so the hope also is that you can find something that might be a little less um, of an environmental hazard. So when you look down the road as someone who writes about fertilizer all the time, what do you see? It's going to be a while (laughs) before we have anything that really, really is a major replacement for a lot of product. Um, I don't think that anyone who is a professional like in the fertilizer industry thinks that anything will ever totally overtake synthetic fertilizer, but a lot of people hope that 
there will be something that can help take some amount of that off. And so not only does that help contribute to, like, keeping prices low because we won't be so dependent on all of these international markets and things, but also maybe it'll help solve some of the environmental problems that fertilizer causes. Elizabeth Elkin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Folero, with additional production support from Rebecca Chasson. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another Big Take. Have a great weekend. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.